Uh, he had a long, complicated title, but I simplified it, right? <laughs> as, as my role as expert title writer. Yeah, there was all kinds of things about tip cells and cell exam interactions and kidneys and <laughs> corals. And he said, why don't you just call it the morphogenesis of branch tissue? I said, okay, that's fine. <clears throat> and I think it's a good title because I am going to talk about branch morphogenesis. And not only in tissues, but also uh, in corals. So uh, actually branching morphogenesis is really ubiquitous in biological development. So there are a couple of examples here. So there's blood vessel development. This one doesn't really branch a little bit over here. Um, then there is uh, kidneys, which um, uh, uh, well have a different way of, of branching morphogenesis. But uh, as I will show, there are we think that uh, in a way they might be related, or similar mechanisms might be responsible for the formation of branches in blood vessels and for the formation of branches in kidneys. It's just a slight twist of the mechanism. Uh, first I'm going to talk about some old work that I did during my PhD on uh, coral morphogenesis. And uh, you will see again the same principles There's coming back in the other one. Oh, there it is. On the oh, okay, yeah, indeed. Yeah, thanks. And, <coughs> well, branching morphogenesis also occurs in the formation of levonation. I'm not, I'm not going to talk about that, but if I did some work on that, if you want to hear that, please uh, ask me later. And I'm, I, 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 I really hope I can ma make it to the kidney stuff, so let's see. Uh, I have a lot of slides, so I, it, probably I won't be able to make uh, to, to show them all. So basically, branch morphogenesis is an example of biological development. And I always like to show this slide because basically what does biological development do? It somehow uh, decodes what we wrote, uh, what is uh, written in the DNA, and uh, it translates that somehow into an organism, like for example the zebrafish. And uh, the way how it does that, well, there's nothing, as you know, there's never, nowhere in the DNA it's written how many fingers my hands has, hand has, and that I'm bold, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, it is there in, in an indirect way. And the way it's decoded is by uh, steering the cells that are going to build the embryo. And this is the process that we want to understand. We want to understand how cells can self-organize and build an embryo. And the way we look at that is the following. If you, if you zoom in a little bit into this process and you see all these cells doing their own thing, and they act as if they're moving uh, yeah, seemingly independently. And if you, know, you see some kind of overall stream, but it looks, less like as, it looks as if each of these cells knows uh, what, it, what it should do and it's doing its own thing. But of course, they're not completely independent. <coughs> As you can see in this nice experiment that was published a couple of years ago in Nature from the Meyer and the Stern group. So uh, basically what they showed, they took these neural crest uh, cells and if you uh, put them in a dish independently, then they undergo a random walk. But if you put them in a group and you follow again a cell, then you see that it will uh, show a ballistic movement. And uh, the reason it, it does that is by contact inhibition. So basically, uh, the cell wants to move in all directions. But if it's touched by another cell, that direction is going to be inhibited. So it moves the other way. And then, uh, just by this really simple rule, if then you put a couple of cells together, 
all cells will start moving like a wave. So uh, this is, I, I think this is a nice example how uh, simple rules that individual cells follow can lead to complicated behavior. Although there's something else happening, right? Because if I remember this experiment correctly, all the cells, they don't all scatter to instantly minimize their contact with, other, with every other cell. Instead, they go as a mass in one direction. So there are some cells in the middle that never escape contact with other cells. Right, but if you would, I think if you would follow this rule, mm -hmm. because they would scatter instantly if they would just really have a, a enormous behavior. Mm -hmm. But if they were surrounded by other cells, they are all inhibited. Mm -hmm. And so they don't move. They're completely inhibited, so they don't move. So they first need to wait until one of the other cells mm -hmm. loses contact. And then that part of the membrane can, can start moving and it will yeah, move away. In this experiment, what happens eventually is that they all. Yeah. I don't remember. What no, I, yeah. Okay. yeah. Are, there, are there chemical gradients in the movie no. on the left? No. How do we know that? Um, I don't know. I, they just put the cells in a dish. So, uh, we, well, there could be chemical gradients over here, of course, yeah. There could be, yeah. They didn't put that in their explanation, but uh, I, you don't need it for the explanation. There but there could be. Cells, so they were taken out of the place where they normally occur, which is in a group, in a pretty small, I don't know how to quantify it, a pretty small region of the body where it's, it's not known that across the cells in situ there's a gradient of something instructive. There could be, but we don't, we don't know it. So, uh, so what we try to do in our work is not understand this process. What we try to do in our work is to uh, understand how simple rules, that's simple agents like cells are following, how they translate into complicated patterns. And how these complicated patterns will then change the environment of the cell such that its behavior will change. And I think again in this case it's a really nice example that indeed the cell can follow a simple rule and this rule will include the signals from its environment. So the environment that it itself creates will change its own behavior. So when you say contact inhibition, is it more than just excluded volume? Yeah, it's an active process. It's really a signal that will inhibit the motility at that position of the cell. But I'm, I'm going to talk much more about contact inhibition later on. I first want to talk uh, about a different process, uh, which is, uh, well, let me, first in, uh, let me first go through this slide. So basically what we try to understand is how can you go from simple behavior of individual cells or other biological entities, how can you go from there to output at the macro scale? So these are patterns, biological patterns, embryos, but in this case branches. And how will a change of the behavior of the individual entities, for example a genetic mutation or pharmaceutical treatment, how will such a change lead to a change of the collective? So in this way, these kind of models help analyze how collective behavior constructs morphology, but also how this morphology feeds back on the individuals. And so uh, the first uh, uh, project that I applied this to was coral morphogenesis. So this is an example of one of our simulations, and that I kind of uh, fancied, uh, fancied up a little bit, or how do you say it? <laughs> Uh, but basically, uh, we're trying to understand how, from simple rules that individual polyps form, follow, you can get uh, a branching colony. Uh, 
And so if you zoom in again a little bit into coral growth, you can understand that it's a really multi-scale process. So uh, we have a coral colony, which, uh, and, uh, which is basically a skeleton on which you have thousands of small polyps. These polyps are somehow coupled together and they are consisting of cells. And of course, the cells consist of a lot of things and one of these things is DNA that regulates what these cells do. And uh, what uh, these cells do determines what the polyp does. And what the polyp does determines what the colony does. And the other way around. So we are representing this in our model in the following way. So we have a, a model of individual polyps, which in this case are just points on the surface, on a curved surface. Then, oh yeah, and all these levels interact with the environment. So uh, then we have a model of the environment. So in this case, the Navier-Stokes equations that determine the flow, the, the flow distribution. Uh, these, uh, the amount of, this will determine how much food a polyp can eat or how much other growth resources it can get. And this will determine how fast it will grow how fast it will deposit skeleton on the underlying skeleton. And this together will then somehow lead to uh, a shape, a three-dimensional shape. So, so nutrients are assumed to be uniform everywhere, or there's not a separate equation no. for the nutrients? Yeah, sorry, this is, I just put the Navier-Stokes equations here as an illustration, but there is a separate equation, for attraction diffusion equation. Okay, and then the, the equation in the bottom left? Oh, uh, actually this is, this, sorry, I'm... Yeah, I, this is the attraction diffusion okay. equation, but sorry. In the, in the, below the Navier-Stokes equations, there's a normal to the growth. Uh, N is the normal to the Yeah, growth. I'm going to explain all okay, of that okay, later wait. on. Okay. Yeah, it's just as an illustration okay, okay, okay. of the different uh, uh, elements of our model. So how is the model built up? So um, first we have to look a little bit at the structure of the coral colony. So as I said, it's, it's basically, we can see it as a big colony of individual polyps. These things. And they all uh, have tentacles, they can all, all eat on their own. So they can all act more or less independently. They live on a skeleton, and they can deposit new skeleton on top of the old skeleton. And at the same time, I said, well, they act as individuals, which are also coupled together, so they can also share food. So each polyp is itself many cells? And each polyp is many cells, yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah. Are you including the photosymbionts in this, or these ones? And not in these models, but in uh, um, newer models that uh, my supervisor, my PG supervisor, uh, Jaap Kamel, uh, is working on right now, they have included that. Yeah. But in, these, in the models that I'm going to explain to you about today, there's no photosynthesis, no zooxanthellae. Zo So indeed, these polyps make the coral grow, or make this coral skeleton grow. So they basically deposit skeleton on top of the old skeleton. And indeed, as a result, you can see in these, in these corals, this is a big uh, hemispherical, uh, I think it's uh, Montastria and Onaris, I'm not really sure. But you can basically see these uh, yeah, kind of growth rings, if you, if you cut it. And also what you can see is the trajectories of the polyps, because they, uh, the, all these uh, black lines are paths that the, the polyp fo polyps followed 
if the once the, 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 the coral has been growing. So then, uh, indeed, what you can say is there are two uh, ways the coral has to grow. So one way is by depositing calcium carbonate on top of the old skeleton, which we call skeletal growth. And the main limiting factors of that are uh, energy, for example, from light, by the zoic centrile, or for, uh, by, uh, from organic nutrients, and the availability of resources. Uh, for example, dissolved, organic, uh, uh, dis dissolved inorganic carbon, or, um, or even uh, the ability to get rid of waste products. And uh, a second thing is that as these corals grow, you can already, uh, as these, the skeleton grows, you can already see that the, uh, the surface area is going to increase. So they need to be able to fill up that uh, new area. And so this is uh, uh, a distinction that uh, Barnes introduced a long, uh, long time ago. So they also need to fill up that uh, space by making new tissue. And it's thought that these two kinds of growth have different limitations. Well, so what uh, did we put in this model? So we are considering the coral as a community of individual polyps. Uh, and uh, although it's not entirely individual because they can share nutrients, we still consider them to, uh, at first as one simple colony. And we want to find a robust and simple and entirely local explanation for coral branching. So we really want to understand, can the structure of this uh, colony explain already why these, the corals can branch? And then I already explained this, that it's multi-scale, etc. And what we want to understand is how this variation in the properties of the individual polyps affects the morphology of the whole colony. So how is the model built up? Well, in a very simple way, uh, we represent the coral by a triangulated surface, and the nodes in those the nodes between the triangles represent the polyps. So then uh, we want to calculate the flow field around uh, this uh, uh, colony, and to do that we use a method that is called the Lattice-Boltzmann method. We basically you need to do this on a discretized grid. So uh, the advantage of that is you can easily calculate flow fields around rather complicated uh, morphologies. So we discretize this and then we put it uh, on a... Um, uh, uh, so we discretize this, uh, this shape. So we put it in a, in a on a lattice in three, dimen three dimensions. Then we can calculate the flow fields. We did it on multiple uh, computers that were relatively slow compared to the ones we have now, that's why we needed to do this. And uh, there you get a, a distribution of nutrients. And um, we assume that these polyps are absorbing the nutrients by a little mouth that they have over here. So basically we assume that each polyp has a certain height and it's, it sticks out a little bit from the surface and it pokes into the fluid, and from there it can absorb nutrients. So then we know how much each polyp has eaten. Uh, then we say, we put that into growth function that will say how much, will, how much skeleton will be able to deposit depending on the amount of food it has eaten. 
And based on this, we can build a next layer. Yeah. Uh, where is the source of nutrients? Okay, that's on my next slide, but basically we can vary that. But in this case, uh, it's, uh, I think in all the simulations I'm going to show you, it's from the top. The one I showed on my, my title slide, it is uh, coming from all sides. Or it wasn't the title slide, but the first, the title slide is this part. So there's no nutrient depletion in the bulk, that, that is, that there's a, it's buffered. There's a, in the simulation you always have at infinity a constant background. We basically assume in this, uh, in some, it depends a little bit on which, simula uh, which boundary conditions we used. But uh, in many simulations we assumed uh, periodic boundary conditions. So it is as if you have an infinite reef with, with food coming from the top. But we have other simulations where we assumed uh, an, uh, an isolated coral and then we had zero boundary conditions on the edge. So in an actual reef, the food is coming from the top in the form of marine snow that's coming down, for example? That's yeah, or, or the assumption was basically that if you are in an infinite reef yep. and the food is, uh, your neighbors are eating away all the food, right. so the only, only direction only where direction you get fresh water... You could get it is from yeah. the top. Yeah. What is the actual food? Um, well, it depends. They eat organic nutrients, they eat little, little animals and krill, but they depend for most corals that we have in, in, in reefs near the coast. They, are, um, uh, they, they depend for a large part on, on photosynthesis because they have uh, intracellular algae that, uh, or, uh, that are, are yeah, called soapsatellae. They are um, uh, Basically, providing the the follows with photosynthesis. And the, the gross limiting process is, is the light. In that case, it's light. But another thing is uh, uh, inorganic carbon. Okay. Uh, also, uh, recent research, experimental research, has shown that it can also be uh, the rate by which they can get rid of their oxygen. Because if they if they try to photosynthesize and there is lots of uh, oxygen nearby and they cannot get the get rid of it, basically accumulates next to the coral surface. And uh, this may also form fields that will limit the growth. I'm just asking because here your, um, your motivation is that um, uh, part of the morphogenesis is that there's some diffusional process that's right. crossing it, yeah. right? And so that, that diffusional process would be diffusion of oxygen that would be from either a diffusion of oxygen away from the coral, it would be uh, dissolved uh, uh, inorganic carbon towards the oxygen, towards the um, uh, towards the colony, because that that's what they need to to to, to photosynthesize and to make uh, calcium carbonate. Uh, or it could be food. So, for example, there are uh, non-photosynthetic corals that uh, would depend entirely on organic food. And the assumption is that the photosynthetic symbiote is slave to the number of polyps uh, that, that uh, are, are growing? I'm sorry? The you, you, you don't explicitly have uh, the uh, uh, complementary symbiotic, symbiotic organism that helps no. the coral. Here, here we assume that this is not limiting. So the, the amount of light they receive is not limiting. I just that's want to make sure I yeah. That yeah. Good. So, so that yeah. is whatever it needs to be to help the polyps. The concentration yeah. of that. So we are looking at uh, a resource, uh, a resource that's, that's dissolved in the water 
and that uh, the polyp somehow needs in order to make a skeleton. And this can be anything. And in practice, in an actual coral reef, the symbiont lives inside the polyp? Live inside or? the cells of the polyp. Okay, thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. Well, so we have a certain method to model resource uh, transport. Um, this is how we build the layers. So it's basically a triangulated surface where the nodes are representing the polyps. Then um, we sh each polyp sticks out a little bit into the water. There it, it absorbs nutrients. And uh, depending on how much it can eat, uh, it can grow faster. So this will determine the length of this uh, arrow, the normal arrow. So it will determine the local thickness of the, of the layer. Right? And um, in the simulations I'm going to show here, uh, I'm not going to talk about flow because in the method we used here, we couldn't get, reach high enough Peclan numbers, so it didn't really matter. So I'm um, looking at the fusion-dominated um, uh, uh, growth. So indeed, we have periodic boundary conditions here, and the fruit coming from the top. But you can vary this in all kinds of different ways. And so we basically have a very minimal number of assumptions. So we just say there are polyps on the surface, uh, they uh, absorb food, and um, depending on the amount of food they can absorb, they will uh, grow faster or slower. And the rotation is just an artifact so we can see what's happening in the Right. Rotation. Yeah. Yeah. So you can look all around. Yeah. And the colors are the growth rate or the amount of absorption rate, basically. And so, of course, what you will see here looks very much like uh, diffusion limited aggregation, for example. So basically, what you get is all the tips that stick into fresh water, they still have access to a lot of uh, food. And uh, it's very hard for the food to reach between the branches because then all the other polyps eat the food away. So you get depletion zones here. But, so. This is what happens with, the, with actual corals, that the same species of coral, if you give it more nutrients, you'll change the, the morphology? Yeah. Okay. Or, uh, so the, this, this, there's the idea that if you put them in more flow, in higher flow rates, they grow more dense, etc. But uh, the jury is still out on what causes that. But indeed, there's, uh, corals are highly plastic. But so, so you could say, well, this is entirely similar to um, uh, diffusion-limited aggregation. And, uh, but there is still one, one important difference, because if we, uh, so in this case, I said we have individual polyps that stick out into the, into the water. If we do not do this, so if we just make the whole surface um, uh, uh, a sink, and uh, then we just measure what is the gradient, uh, at each location, then it can still branch, but it's much more difficult. So we have to really make sure the, the fields are entirely in equilibrium, and then we grow again, and then very slowly it will start branching. So and in this way, if we do it in this way, things branch much more easily. Is and why is that? Is there an advantage to the triangulated structure as opposed to some other form? I don't think it's necessarily the triangulated uh, structure, but I think it's more the fact, and that's some, what I'm going to show in the next slide, the fact that if you put these polyps on a curved surface, right, then 
if, the, if the, you, by, by uh, assuming individual polyps, you're introducing an, an, an extra curvature effect. Because if they are on a flat surface, you know, they're all standing side by side and they get a lot of competition from your neighbors. But if they are going to be on a, on a positively curved surface, they are kind of fanning out and so they receive less competition. Whereas if you are on a convex part of the surface, then they are kind of poking into each other and they're really uh, having a, yeah, a lot of, they get more competition from the neighbors. And the colors on the previous slide were a proxy for growth rate or something? Yeah, they were, they, they were the growth rate or the amount of nutrients. They were actually the amount of nutrients that the, the so that's a, nu a nutrient flux. The nutrient flux. Normal Absolutely. nutrient flux. Yeah. The colors mean. Yeah. And by the way, this is a cross-section of the whole thing. You can see the individual growth layers. So but if this is important in this model, then, um, so this introduces a curvature effect. Then also we should be able to reduce that curvature effect by placing the polyps further apart from one another. And so this is what we're trying to do. So what I did here is I'm uh, increasingly placing these polyps further apart from one another. And what you can see is that um, the, the, the further we place them apart from each other, the, less, the more thick the branches will become, and, and indeed this suggests that uh, this uh, what we call polyp fanning effect has a, plays an important role in this branching process in our model. And uh, similar to, to just having uh, a lower uptake rate per unit of area. Um, um, uh, is it similar to having a lower um, let me think. I, I, this is a thing we didn't test because in these in these models at this moment we, we assumed that all the polyps were um, were thing. really sinks. So, so, so it is right. If you reduce the number of at the density of of polyps, per then per then rate. it reduces the the total uptake yeah. uptake rate. But your question is if you were to change to have the same uptake rate. For um, if you would have a reduced uptake rate for the individual polyps, would you still get? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I tend to think about this uh, diffusion-limited aggregation, like right. this is a balance yeah. between diffusion and, and consumption. Right. Exactly. Right? Uh, yeah. And if if, uh, if consumption dominates, then you have uh, the, the the finger-like structures. But uh, if, if diffusion is very strong, then you have right. the wrong. Yeah. Thing, right? And so you wonder if this uh, if this could be related. Yeah. Um, I don't. I. I don't think it's. It's a good question. I'm. I'm not sure. But these little. It would be something we would have to test. But it's. Uh, I, I won't. I won't do that because this is really too long ago. <laughs> but. Uh, but it would be interesting. Little, sorry, just a point of information. These little black dots that we see, uh, decorating these structures. Those are the polyps. Or? Those are the polyps. Okay. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Did you put a. To space them out more? Yeah. Did you put a cost of structure? Or also did, did I? Did they have to 
absorb more nutrients to to have a for the calcium carbonate or whatever? Oh no, there's no no. That 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 would be that would be a very interesting thing to do, but we didn't do that. We just looked at what happens if you place them further apart. And the, the reason was to reduce this uh, curvature effect. But uh, um, uh, <coughs> so, and you, your question is a very interesting one. Could this also have been? Could this also be due to the fact that if you uh, that you basically reduce the effective absorption rate of the of the surface? And that's the thing I. That's a that's a very good point. I don't know. Yeah. Well, we can discuss later. Yeah, because indeed in in diffusion limited aggregation, this is what would what would happen. It would have a very similar effect. That's uh, anyway. Let's discuss this later. Yeah. And basically, what we did here is to check that this was not a finite size effect, because it might also be that you're just basically reducing the resolution of your of the that we were just reducing the resolution of our uh, triangulations. Um, and that would suggest that if you would grow the coral twice as large, that uh, it would still look statistically similar to one with fine spacing. Uh, but it didn't. So this is just one type of coral, I guess. I mean. There are many, many types of corals. Some of them are completely. Yeah, some of them are completely spherical. Some of them are flat, and this is uh, so. This would be closest to a coral called Madrasus mirabilis, which is a very yeah branch coral. So the the one I sh the real coral I showed you in the beginning is a Madrasus mirabilis. But is is it known why the fan-shaped corals are approximately planar? No. It's a very interesting question, and uh, it's also known. Uh, it's the, 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 some of these ones they they orient perpendicular, I think, to the to the current, to, to the current which is very interesting. Yeah, but I I don't think it's known yet. Also, I mean that would give you better nutrient access to every cell. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, but then of course it's. Um, question a nice question, then of course is this an entirely physical effect? Can you explain this with uh, uh, growth rates, uh, just b because the, the branches that happen to move perpendicular to the flow direction, uh, they happen to grow faster, or or is this really an adaptive thing that you uh, that uh, the the coral actively regulates? That's uh, but it's a it's a very interesting question. Yeah, and also how can yeah? Is there a measured temperature gradient as the coral grows? Because some of these corals are huge. They would shade sunshine, so there could be a significant temperature effect. Yeah. Or a photosynthesis gradient. Sorry? Or a photosynthesis gradient. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we haven't put it in, but what people, uh, what, what uh, uh, my supervisor, my PhD supervisor at the time, Jaap Kaanderop, has done is indeed includes um, uh, shading effects. And then you see, well, basically what you see is that the coral grows more upward. Yeah. yeah. And this is one, uh, before I move to the next uh, topic, this is one thing I would like you to see. Uh, if you follow now these trajectories, uh, this is basically a cross-section where we couple uh, subsequent positions of the, of the polyps. Well, first of all, you see they form this typical fanning shape that you also see in cross-sections of actual coral skeletons. 
But also what I like very much is that you get uh, regions where uh, the growth trajectories are di uh, diverging, diverging. So that's where new polyps get born. But there are also areas where trajectories are converging. Uh, like for example here or here. So this is where the polyps die. So, um, so you might argue that even you get a new level of selection in this kind of structure because uh, a polyp that will grow on one branch can never make it to another branch because before it gets there it will be, be squeezed between the two branches. So that means that, for example, if you would have a, a mutation of a polyp in one branch, that it also will never reach the other. But the actual polyps branch, and that, that's a parameter in the simulation where you allow them to branch? No, no, it's, it's entirely emergent. So we don't have any, any rules that will... Emergent property. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the, the polyps, they, they reproduce? As a, as yeah. A... Oh, I, I think I kind of skipped over that. Let's see if it's still, yeah. So this is an example. So we have uh, three polyps over here, and they grow, and we assume here they're on the on the on the uh, convex part of the surface. And uh, as after the growth, these polyps are getting pretty far from one another. And so we just have a rule that says if uh, two polyps are too far from each other, we place a new polyp in the middle of it. So that's how the new polyps get born. So there is a parameter that, that is yeah. how far apart before you... How far apart before you introduce a new polyp, yes. Do you tune that, or how do you choose that parameter? Uh, we just said if, it's, uh, if the distance is twice uh, a base level, then we introduce one. Yeah. And similarly, if they're, con if they're converging... If they converge and they reach half of the, of the, of the baseline, we, have them, we fuse them. And the, the fusing is just because it's um, for computational reasons. So claiming that you can get really uh, branches, sharp structures to... So there was a question about the density of polyps. But I guess if, you can get round shapes, but if you go the other way, you can get really if you, if, branched and thin. Um, well, if you, if, if you do it the other way, in, we, we, in yeah, which other way? Increasing polyp density. Yeah. And then you've got round shapes. Right. Yeah, and the other way around. Then you will get really fractal, like yeah. thin Yeah, but then of course at a certain moment you're, we, you're going to be limited by the lattice of your um, of the flow uh, simulation. So we didn't do that. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because you're increasing the, the curvature effect. Yeah. Okay, there's one, one last thing I wanted to show. Uh, but if you know DLA, this is not going to be surprising. But for many coral biologists, it is surprising. So they find, they go into the field, and they find two corals that are growing really close to one another. And together they form the shape of one colony. So from a distance you cannot see that this is, going, this is one colony. But then if, if you move closer, it looks really, it, it appears they're really two different uh, colonies. So this led people to say, for example, uh, 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 Rinkevich, a uh, coral biologist from Israel, to say that these corals should communicate. That they are secreting some kind of uh, hormone 
uh, called an isomone that will uh, organize the whole colony. And so we said, well, let's try what happens if you put two, um, two of these uh, tools next together. And of course, I mean, and this is the reason is that a new depletion zone of food will uh, appear between the two corals. And the result is that with these very simple rules, you get something that looks like one coral. And that seems as if it's communicating. Now, of course, it is communicating in a way. It's communicating via by competing for food. So you don't necessarily need to assume any active communication between these two colonies. But this is a, yeah, a thing if you, if you, this appears in, in uh, much simpler models, like DNA, DLA models. So, uh, what I've showed you, um, in these polypore-oriented models, uh, we see an effect that we could call polyp fanning, and this introduces, so the fact that polyps will fan out and, uh, on contact parts of the coral surface, and receive less competition from one another, may uh, drive this branching. And indeed, the, uh, how close uh, these polyps are packed, this influences the size of the branches, and this is indeed uh, uh, a prediction of the model. Uh, so for dense packing, we get finely branched objects, for coarse packing, thickly branched objects, and, uh, well, this, this I said over there. Okay, anyway. So, um, I have a question about the yeah. previous statement you made. Be before we move to the... Coral reef, so coral reefs form by accumulating polyps over a long period of time, right? Yeah. So, so what Scal you said about Scal inhibition of two polyps that are growing close by, imagine you have a colony of such polyps that are growing close by. So does it mean that they will change the structure of the surface in a predictable way that you can actually, by sectioning a coral reef, you can actually see how in the past the corals have inhibited each other's growth and deposits have changed. So the convex and concave surfaces alternate. As you can imagine that if you have yeah. more growth, it will make the surface more con concave mm -hmm. when it used to be convex. So you'll see ripples. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's an interesting uh, idea. There's one there's one effect that will kind of inhibit this, because in order to really have this uh, to find these kinds of effects, you also would also have to assume that all corals behave in the same way. Uh, but corals are a little bit more smart than that, because they will, if you have two place two different species of corals next to one another, they will actively attack one another. So, so it's not just food inhibition. It's no, it's also they will. So two different species will really hit one another with. Uh, uh, um, I forget what what are the names of these uh, cells, the, the the metal cells, what the things that make a, a, a jellyfish hurt. Uh, the harpoon. They, they have these little harpoons. If you touch them, they uh, and this is what they the corals do one to do to one another, just to overgrow each other. So. But perhaps within one, one species of coral is, is what you could see. All right. Um, I would like to move to another topic, uh, much more recent, uh, which is uh, angiogenesis. So uh, angiogenesis is the growth of new blood vessels. And this is actually a process that is perfectly normal. It happens all through your life. 
For example, if you have a wound and it closes, then uh, new blood, blood vessels will grow in to provide the new tissue with oxygen and nutrients. Uh, but it also occurs in less favorable uh, circumstances, for example, during cancer. And actually, it's the same response. So if you have a, a couple of cells that, whose growth uh, becomes unregulated, they uh, will start uh, forming a small uh, colony of cells. In the middle of this colony, um, uh, cells get hungry and they get hypoxic, they get a lack of oxygen. So as a natural, perfectly natural response to that, the cells will start producing all kinds of growth factors, including VEGF, uh, which is vascular endothelial growth factor, which will move to nearby blood vessels and activate endothelial cells that are uh, the, those are the cells that cover the inner walls of your blood vessel. They will become restless, motile, and uh, crawl out and form a, a new blood vessel that will then provide the tumor with, a new, uh, with oxygen and with food, such as it can start growing again. Um, so what, of course, we would like to understand is how can you uh, fine-tune or stop uh, such blood vessel growth in order also to uh, stop tumor growth. Well, of course, this is a, is a very complicated process that we would like to simplify a little bit. And um, a very common way of simplifying this process is by isolating those endothelial cells uh, and culturing them in a dish. And this is a typical culture. These are uh, endothelial cells that you can obtain from umbilical cords of newborn babies. You can just wash them out and put them in a gel, which is called matrigel. So it's a commercial product. And uh, this gel will start, will activate this, the cells, uh, and they will crawl to one another and form a network. So our question was, how can we understand this? And of course, we did that using, again, using the same approach of cell. We call it now cell-based modeling because we have cells instead of polyps. And again, we do the same thing. We uh, try to understand what rules endothelial cells must uh, follow in order to form a network. So we put in the behavior of the endothelial cells at the micro scale, and at the macroscopic scale we get out tissue shapes, patterns, and then we try to understand how a change in the cell behavior will change the patterns. Just like in a coral model, we could change the distance between the polyps, or we could change the growth function, etc., and then study how it will affect uh, coral morphogenesis. Um, well, so there are many ways of doing this. Uh, you can uh, model cells as point particles, on a lattice, off a lattice. Uh, typically what we do is model these cells as uh, collections of particles, such that we can also represent the shape of the cells, but also such that we can say that a cell on one end does something else than it does on the other end, like, which is often important, as for example in this, uh, as for, uh, in this example, uh, that I showed in the beginning of the neural crest cells, right? So uh, a cell was touched on one end, and uh, the other end was more or less acting independently, and it would move away as a result. So can I just can go back to this, uh, just to make sure I understood that movie, the, the final result was having seeded it with a low density of cells, there you go, Yeah. was a, a network with voids, are there okay, so, yeah. between the network? Sorry about that. Okay, so here are the cells. These are individual endothelial cells. Yes. And they uh, aggregate. You can still you can see a little bit of the, the individual cells over here. 
and they form a network. Are there cell these are the cells and these are voids in the network. Good. And are there cell divisions on the time scale that we're seeing? Not a, and there are some cell divi divisions, but not significant on this not time a lot scale. Of them. Okay. No. I'm not sure if you could see any cell division. Yeah, there, there would be a couple, but it's not, not relevant. And the void spacing is uh, related to the initial seed density of cells? Uh, no. It, it's no. universal void spacing? Um, yes, uh, but it will change over time. As you can see, the void spacing it starts relatively yeah. fine-grained okay. and will coarsen over time. And um, uh, if you reduce the, uh, the amount of cells, you, you, at a certain amount you get a percolation transition meaning that uh, they will still form branches, but they won't reach one another anymore. Thank you. Well, yeah? I probably know the answer to this, but is there a connection between the coarsening of this network and the coarsening of two-dimensional soap bubble films? Because this, this movie, of this, this picture right here, reminds me a lot of those two-dimensional yeah, but, I, movies that but that's when the, then the individual bubbles grow, right? And there's gas going from one bubble to the other, and right, some and bubbles. Eventually, those coarsen. But there's no pressure in this. Yeah. In these voids, right? That is in the two-dimensional soap bubble cases. The pressure is what governs the. Yeah. We have, we do have some answer to why this course is so, uh, but I don't think that answer is related to what happens in cell bubbles, actually. Yeah. Do you like uh, cells attract other cells? Yeah, so we think that, that cells attract other cells, so that's our first hypothesis. Thanks. Okay, so um, you, you've got a lot, lot of, sorry, yeah? For those movies, just watching them, I, I I was looking at those polygons, uh, and they—I think they had at most six vertices. How many vertices can you actually get if you look at? Um, uh, we haven't specifically measured this. Um, have we? No, we. But we could measure it. We still have uh, some data sets of this, but uh, it's typically three, I think. Three per they come together three. in threes, but then there's, the, there's the number of sides of the polyhedron. Poly yeah. Oh, right. That's what you mean. Sorry. Yeah. And I, yeah. If I'm looking at uh, that one at the left, it's probably, I think it has about six vertices. And one can count, and you can see four, yeah. five, six. So I, uh, Very interesting question. We haven't, we've never looked at this. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> Okay, you've heard a lot of uh, stories about the cell of Potsmalor. Is everybody familiar with that? Have you seen all seen James's talk? So I don't need to go over this, right? You know about you have the Hamiltonian, you have cells that are represented by uh, multiple lattice in the same state, and uh, you have a component that describes cell adhesion, a component that uh, describes volume uh, conservation, and we. Uh, minimizes Hamiltonian by simulating stochastic motility of cells, uh, which uh, they move by protruding and retracting uh, uh, sections of their membranes. And this we represent by lattice side copies. So we 
apply these kinds of copies, then we look at what uh, the Hamiltonian does. If this minimizes the Hamiltonian, meaning that we get, for example, stronger adhesion to an adjacent cell, then we are going to accept it. But we also are going to accept sometimes changes that are going to reduce, uh, increase the pattern energy uh, to uh, account for active motility of cells. And the model has built into it that like cells adhere better to like cells? And that's a parameter. So that is, that is a parameter that you represent by the J, by the J's. So J is a matrix that represents the adhesion between uh, all the types of, uh, all the pairs of types of cells in, in your simulation. So you could, yellow could be uh, adhering to red more weakly than yellow to yellow. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So uh, as in this simulation here, we have two types of cells. So we say now that yellow adheres well to yellow and red adheres well to, to red. So they sort out. Now about halfway the simulation, we're changing one of these J values to say that uh, the red cells have a very high uh, energy with the medium. So they want to stay away from that. And as a result, the yellow cell starts surrounding the red cells. So we use these tools to start modeling blood vessel growth. And indeed, one of the hypotheses we, uh, that was introduced a couple of years ago, 10 years ago, by uh, uh, the Preciosi group, the Luigi Preciosi group, they said, uh, they assumed that cells would secrete a chemoattractant and that would attract the other cells. And they show this in the following way. So here you have an initial distribution of these the UVACs, these endothelial cells seeded on a, a metrogel. And they assume that each of these cells is a point source of a chemoattractant uh, that would uh, diffuse and uh, degrade in the matrix. So the equation looks like this. So. And then we have a source term, and which is only true at the cells. So this will form exponential gradients around these point sources. And of course then, if you have higher uh, densities of cells, you also get a higher concentration of your chemoattractant. And then if they follow the trajectories over, of these cells over time, this is the initial condition, the, final, the initial uh, position, the final position, you see that they move up these gradients of the chemoattractant. And then they develop the partial differential equation model that I'm not going to show here, uh, which is related to the Burgers equations from astrophysics. And they show that these form networks, but they were unstable. And uh, so this. Are there shock waves? Are there shocks that come out of this uh, mapping onto Burgers? Yeah, kind of strands, strands of, of, of mass that, that are in the, in the lattice, but eventually this will collapse into. Yeah into accumulations of all the mass. So the various equations yeah, are gravitational equations. So we decided to do it in another way. And why? Because uh, for two reasons. In the various equations, uh, you, have, you have Newtonian mechanics, meaning that if you apply a force, this will accelerate the cells. And in this kind of environment, this gel is a very viscous environment. So this creates other kinds of mechanics. It says that it creates overdone mechanics where the force is going to be proportional to the velocity. 
And this kind of mechanics is very well represented in the cellular pots model. And on top of that, we can also look at the role of stochasticity in this kind of uh, system. So that's why we decided to look again at this problem. And uh, to do that, we need to uh, modify our cellular pots model a little bit. And we do that just by adding a partial differential equation on top of that, that is going to solve this equation over here. And um, uh, it's discretized uh, with the same grid spacing as the cellular pots model. So that means that in each of the latter sides you get a concentration. Uh, here represented with the grayscale. And so uh, we can make the source term dependent on uh, the position of these cells. So where we have a cell, we have a source. Where we have medium, we don't have a source. And then um, we also want the cells to, to uh, respond to the chemical concentration in the letters. And we do this in the following ways. An algorithm introduced by uh, Nick Seville and Pauline Hoogweg to model dictyostelium uh, morphogenesis. So what they assumed is that uh, cells, uh, if cells are protruding a pseudopod, uh, they will do so more likely in the direction of a higher concentration of the chemoattractants. And the same is true for retraction. If they retract the pseudopod, and if the concentration were higher over here, they would do so with a higher probability. So that means now we have all the tools together to implement this hypothesis again. So we just assume that all cells are secreting a chemoattractant. Uh, that is diffusing away and that's degrading, so you get exponential gradients around these cells. And they're attracted to one another and you get maybe what you would expect, uh, an accumulation of cells. And something, you know, if I were to stop the simulation over here, then I would have something like a network, but it's not, it's not stable. It's not stable. And there's a surface tension built into this cellular process. Yes, level. this surface tension is there automatically. And they form little circles yeah. and yeah. diffuse. And yeah, although we say we, uh, uh, the settings are such in this case that the surface tension is very weak. There's actually a surface tension of zero. What are there's the, also going to be some surface tension nevertheless. What are the ISO contours? Oh, yeah, those are the ISO lines of the, of the chemical concentrations. Of the secreted material. Of the secreted. It decays uh, exponentially. But why does it decay exponentially when there's no cells out there in the open spaces and in the interstices? Why would it decay exponentially in that case? I'm not sure if I understand the question. Well, if I understand the model, yeah. there's a some sort of attractant mm -hmm. secreted by every cell. Yeah. And then you had a, a decay. Mm -hmm. of and that's just, uh, what is the biological basis of that decay? It's just... Yeah, for example, um, neutralization by um, uh, diffusing receptors, like VEGF-R1 receptors. That okay, can just so they mop can up the background of absorbers. Yeah, or it can be the extracellular matrix that will bind the... Uh, Some sort of enzyme. Yeah, an enzyme that breaks it down. Not, it's not pretty cells, things. but... but yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. Oh, now I, now I understand the confusion. Yeah. Yeah, so it's not necessarily cells that break it down, but it can be just but enzymes that are in the extracellular. But the scale of that screening length, of that, of that exponential healing length or whatever, yeah. is known from experiment, or it could be anything. Um, yeah, the, the there's some. It's there's the epsilon in your yeah, equation. yeah. So there's a lot. Of, so it's uh, the diffusion length is uh, like this, right? Yeah. So. Um, um, there's a lot of discussion about this. 
Right, and here it looks yeah. very small yeah. compared to the spacing between the I agree. themselves. Yeah, and if you, if you, so actually if you take reported values of, uh, of these diffusion coefficients for, um, uh, for uh, VGF, yeah. you take reported values of the epsilon over here, our gradients are way too steep. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, huh. um, but there are all kinds of, so first of all, it's not known whether they really secrete VEGF or whether they secrete yeah. other growth factors. If they secrete VEGF, it's very likely that they're going to be trapped by the extracellular matrix, which would radically slow down the diffusion. So there are all, or it would even increase the uh, yeah. uh, degradation. So there are all kinds of reasons to assume that um, if, that it's not sufficient just to measure the diffusion of VGF in the water resolution. Okay, and then there was a, there was a link scale in those nice experiments where everything formed uh, this network with voids in between, and that was the width of the uh, of, yeah. of, of the filamentous aggregations yeah. of cells. Yeah, and could that be related to L? That is that is that is related to L. Okay. So if we, uh, but uh, let, let me um, move forward and I can show. Yeah. So basically, so here we have a model that doesn't work, right? It's, uh, if people know it, it's, it's actually it's a cellular pot implementation of the of the Keller-Siegel equations. So, uh, so we wondered, can we modify this model to have it make networks? And actually, we can. Uh, and as I will show you, uh, unfortunately, it's it's very easy to do it. <laughs> so we have a lot we have a lot of different explanations now. So the first explanation we were really happy, and now uh, we have so many explanations that it becomes problematic. So, <laughs> but the first explanation is the following: um, if we uh, change the shape of these cells in such a way that they're elongated instead of round, then we get networks. And also what I like of these networks is that they have a very similar coarsening behavior. So they start off uh, very fine grains uh, and they start coarsening over time. So the, the wavelength changes over time. Do you have a tunable aspect ratio for the cells now? Yep. And you're just, just, you're just doing in two dimensions for some... Well, it's on, it's on a dish. Yeah, it's on a dish, so it's reasonable to assume this is a two-dimensional uh, process. The only thing is maybe in reality they could crawl over each other. Here they cannot do that. And, yeah. and again, there's no cell division on the time scale. No, no. We could do cell division, but here in this model we, are, we don't. What was the difference between this model and the previous? Uh, the cell shape. So we add, basically we add one component to the, to the Hamiltonian. Can you all see this? So basically we, we add another element which is the following. So remember we had this area constraint, now we also have a length constraint. And this length we can measure using the um, uh, inertia tensors of the cells. So we, well, we can estimate it. So, so which is the... Um uh, well, I, I don't guess it matters, but little l, let's say. Little, oh, sorry, little l is the actual area, is the actual okay. length, sorry, so as capital L is the target length. And it bears no relation to the square root of d over epsilon. Right, completely. No. Right. 
It's so, completely different. But the idea, oh, yeah. the idea here is that you extract the largest. Does this correspond to the uh, largest eigenvalue of the shape tensor? Yes. And that's, yeah. and so we have the inertia tensor, which is uh, which you can construct from roll moments. So that's the sum of x, sum of x squared, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and that's those things we can keep track on while updating the cells. So we, in this way, we always have an efficient estimate of the, of the length. And you so always take the largest. The always take the largest, the largest argument. Value. Value. Yeah. Right. And uh, so anyway, yeah. And there is a there is a little problem uh, that we also need to take care of. Sorry, yeah. I'm saying if you run this long enough, it also seems to coarsen too far to be yeah. consistent with the nice yeah. voids and so forth. Indeed, but, but for a while it looks better. Yeah, and actually we do think that in this case, um, this is going to stabilize, but we 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 cannot know for sure because we cannot do simulations for infinity. Uh, but we do think that if we run them quasi-infinitely, very long, they, they course and they also, uh, you know, they, they, they settle down on a particular wavelength. How do we know that the experimental system doesn't keep coarsening and exactly. fall apart? The is stable. It will, it will uh, experimentally it will just fall apart. Yeah. So it will just die, the cells just die after a while. Yeah. They're actually not so happy in nitrogen. Do you need to perfuse them? Sorry? Do you need to perfuse the nitrogen? gel? Can you perfuse that? The that's replenishing yeah, the nutrients. Possibly. Yeah. Possible, yeah. Yeah. Probably they just we, we, didn't, we didn't do that. Did we do it in any experiments? <coughs> no, I've done some experiments with, with nitrogen gel myself. But basically my task was to uh, take them out of the incubator and put them under the microscope, take a picture, and, and, uh, and that's every hour, 20, four, uh, or yeah, no, not every hour, but still uh, uh, long enough to, to get some lack of sleep after a while. But it was a lot of fun. But I didn't, uh, didn't touch the actual cells. It looks like you're developing uh, junctions which are always three-way junctions. Yeah. yeah. Nearly 120 degree, is that, uh, yeah. I mean, one has to wait, I guess, for some. Yeah. Is yeah. that understandable from the pot's point of view? Um, we, haven't, minimizing, uh, we haven't looked at that. Uh, it would be interesting. It's, it's nice, though, that mm -hmm. we don't have, they do not they orient along uh, approximately 120 degrees angles on the square letters. So that is so that means we don't have a lot of trouble with lattice effects in this in this particular setting. But I we did do other analyses, so that I would like to tell you more about right now, because um, uh, my PhD student Marie Palm found that we don't even need the chemotaxis in this model, so it's just sufficient to have volume exclusion. So if you just put a lot of these cells together, elongate it, they're close enough so they will touch, they will uh, form networks. Uh, but with uh, a little bit different dynamics, so, with, with, so this is at the same time scale, so with chemotaxis they develop much more quickly and they will get a much bigger uh, length scale. Um, 
So that, but this more simple model allowed us to understand a bit better why cell shape matters. So basically what, hap what we think happens is that, well, they, the cells will align with one another. So they will form elongated structures and orient their axis relative to one another. So we, that means that we can analyze maybe the system as, a, as if it were a liquid crystal with uh, rod-shaped particles that are aligning with one another. So this allows us to define an orient, uh, orientational order parameter. So the first thing we have to define is tau. This is a function of the lattice side and r, which is the radius. So we say, um, so at each lattice side, we calculate, we take the mean uh, orientations of all the cells on a disk of radius r. It's probably not important, but that orientational order parameter is appropriate for three dimensions, not two. Really? Yes. Oops. <laughs> you want a two instead of a three. If it's Sorry? That three, it would only average to zero in an isotropic medium in two dimensions if that three is replaced by it may not be important but that's a three-dimensional pneumatic order parameter that you've oops we, we didn't uh, we didn't catch that <laughs> the reviewers didn't either <laughs> oops thank you <laughs> all right so i will have a look at that so this should be a two you say yes okay oops <laughs> okay um so anyway, so we have here an order parameter. It will become one if things are perfectly ordered, and will become zero if we get two there if it's uh, completely unordered. Um, let me see. Yeah. So then, if we look at how these networks are developing, is uh, well, a couple of things. First of all, the chemotaxis. So if we look at uh, a local ordering, so with a disk uh, RS20, then we see that the chemotaxis simulation really settles quickly on uh, the ordering close to one, and then it remains relatively stable. For the um, simulation without chemotaxis, it, it goes much more slowly. And then it still slowly seems to settle down. Um, then um, uh, we have a ordering over larger scale. So this scale basically captures the side-by-side -side ordering of the cells. This scale also captures the cells in front and on the back of the, of the cells. So then we see that with chemotaxis, this also goes fairly quickly. Um, and for the uh, simulations without chemotaxis, this or the ordering is really slowly settles very slowly and but actually it seems that it seems it doesn't really settle I mean here it intersects but it, uh, it might just go on and then we look at the global ordering well we see that the whole thing doesn't really reach an ordering because um, um, uh, because we, we have a network right and so then we thought that uh, what what would be happening? So we thought that cells would um, locally orient to one another, and um, um, so for one cell, 
to join an adjacent cluster it's relatively easy because it can just easily rotate and then join it but once a couple of cells have joined together for the whole cluster to move around and to join an adjacent cluster is going to be fairly difficult because you have the whole, the whole cluster as a term and so, so, so to analyze this what Magie did was uh, again using this local ordering and plotting it on uh, a movie so here you see ordered domains separated by uh, uh, letter sites with a high value uh, a low value of the ordering parameter uh, which is where two, we have kind of lattice effects so then what you can do is you can kind of um, use these uh, borders to separate clusters and to look at the diffusion uh, the translational and the rotational diffusion of these clusters um, and uh, well the rotational diffusion doesn't really have any dependence on the, uh, on the uh, uh, the translation uh, diffusion doesn't really depend on the cluster size but the rotational diffusion does in the following way so um, so uh, indeed we see here that for small clusters it's relatively easy to rotate for bigger clusters it becomes much more smaller uh, uh, yeah so what we think is indeed that initially uh, you get a uh, formation of a lot of locally ordered domains and then uh, that will still try to join up but this joining is going to be much ever more slowly so we think that eventually without chemotaxis the whole system will just evolve into a cluster of ordered cells uh, but we never get there because the process is going much more, ever more slowly and this is what we call arrested, what is called arrested dynamics so S of zero means, means what in your it means um, that there's no local ordering. So in this case, S uh, has a value of zero because the cells are oriented in one direction over here and in another direction over there. So they separate. In this way, we can separate locally ordered clusters. If I understand correctly, if, if, if you were to use the correct two-dimensional S rather than the one that you're using, um, your zero would be at a different... Angle. Yeah, but this is not, it's, it's uh, I think we're somewhere there. So okay. probably, probably if we were to use the right so value, you which when you this is zero. Is that the so idea? with the formula that you showed and two dimensions, I don't see how it could be less than a half. I, uh, we have you can't average a cosine squared and get anything less than I, I will have a look at this. I mean, uh, this is... Uh, I think you want to change that three to a two. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, this is a... Uh, well, we were kind of new to uh, to the to the liquid crystal theory, and we totally missed that. Yeah. That is, um, but indeed, we we can put a certain threshold over the over here to separate those clusters, and it's not it's not going to be zero or close to zero. It's, I, I I'd have to ask Magit exactly what threshold she used. Well, if the average of cosine squared was a half, right, then you get zero. Is that right? It, 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 with the right order parameter, but if right we're three cosine squared minus one, it couldn't be less than a half. Mm -hmm. um, no, but, but he has a one half in front of the whole thing. That's true. So that would but be one fourth, right? Yes. So maybe that's why you're see
you're only getting down to point six five. Keep going. Yeah, there. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, we are getting close. Yeah, that's really zero. That's really zero. That, that's yeah, that's that's. Hmm. This is why the KIDP is so useful. Yeah, we can. <laughs> thank you. I mean, we can't we can't correct this uh, this reference anymore. We we can't correct this one. So. <laughs> so hmm, hmm. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't explain why you're getting close. So well, maybe this. You would get closer to one. Is that possible? Oh. Yeah, because yeah. three, it's three, three minus one over two. Over two. Yeah, there you go. It actually should be getting, getting close. No, no. Okay. Oh, well, opens up a whole lot of new questions. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, so anyway, I, I promise you I, I would show you other mechanisms, and, and yet other mechanisms and other me mechanisms. And one of these other mechanisms is the following, and that, that is based on contact inhibition. And the idea here is that um, uh, in the initial model, we assumed that cells would secrete a chemotractant and that all the uh, membranes of the cells would uh, respond to that chemotractant in the same way. Whereas, in fact, we know that uh, chemotractants may have a context-dependent effect or signals in general. And an example of that is following is... Uh, if you have VHF, that's an endothelial growth factor, and it binds to VHFR2 on a cell ECM interface, this will activate the uh, ERK MAPK pathway, uh, which will make the cell more dynamic and often leads to proliferation. However, if uh, you bind the same signal on um, uh, a cell, cell, cell interface, then uh, this, uh, due to binding with the cadherin, this leads to AKT uh, activation and survival. So this is what makes cells uh, grow into confluency on a, in the cell culture. So we translated this idea in the following way, is that we said now the cells are no longer going to feel the chemoattractant on all their membranes, but they're only going to feel them on the cell ECM membranes, and on the cell cell membranes are going to be insensitive. And so by only making this change and keeping the rest of the model the same, this is what you get. So again, you get networks. They have slightly different properties. They don't have this strong coarsening behavior that you saw in the other. And uh, uh, what you do get is a fusion of these uh, lacunae and also splitting of lacunae. Like I think it happens over here in a minute. Come on. <laughs> yeah, there's one. <laughs> and I think this one is even, it's going to split or almost going to split. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, it was somewhere else. Anyway, believe me, <laughs> they will split. So you would get a kind of dynamic equilibrium of um, closing of lacunae and formation of new splitting of existing lacunae. And a funny thing of this mechanism, and by the way, it also happens for the cell elongation mechanism, is that uh, the same mechanism can also form sprouts. Ah, here you have... Uh, uh, no. Um, so, uh, and this kind of uh, starting from a blob makes it much easier to analyze. 
So, here so what's there's happening? No, there's no elongation here. No, there's no elongation here. It's, we go back to round cells. So we, or we, we could test both, both mechanisms together, but we want to separate the two effects. So following up on that, so, so does the area of those lacunae depend on, on, the, on the cell size, whether the cells are round or elongated? Um, no. Uh, depends on the diffusion length. Uh, because even if we were, I mean, at a certain moment you would say it starts to depend, but even if we uh, were to use really large cells, sometimes the cells even themselves start to start to buckle. So um, there are some other phenomena that depend on the cell cell uh, sh uh, size, but the size of the lacuna is dominated by the diffusion rate. Um, so what happens here? So the first idea we had is, well, let's look at one cell on uh, a blob of, uh, on the surface of a blob of cells. So um, this, if we make a cross-section here, what we get is a, is a normal distribution of, of the keyboard tractor. How far am I in, in time? Uh, well, you have, you know, you could go another 20 minutes. Oops. Um, Would you like to pause and start a new subject later, or? Yeah, I was wondering, I was hoping to get to, to a different topic. <laughs> um, you want to jump to that topic? I'm, let's, let me jump to that topic, okay. because otherwise right. uh, there's going to, to, to be too much overlap of my okay. Friday talk. And uh, and I feel like I'm telling the same story over and over again. But, okay. Oh yeah. The, by, yeah. Okay. Sorry, uh, Andras, but I will show this on the, uh, some kidney models. Okay. So. Um, so the mechanism I just showed you and the mechanism I was about to show you is on um, assumes that cells are attracted to one another, one another by chemotaxis. And um, there are a number of problems with that hypothesis, namely that uh, it's not known whether cells do actually secrete something like VEGF. There's a lot of discussion, sometimes they do, and then it's thought that they might secrete it because uh, this is just a natural, natural response for all cells that get hypoxic, etc. So uh, then it might secrete another chemoattractant. So it's not really now known, and th there are loads of other hypotheses. But it's also known that the uh, property of the environment that the cells live in, and that is the extracellular matrix, this is all kinds of stuff that cells produce and which they live in, that the properties of that gel, uh, also like metrogel, will determine the, um, uh, also the sizes of these networks. And uh, this has, um, uh, as recent people have started hypothesizing that maybe, um, uh, maybe cells are not uh, attracted to one another via chemo chemotactic radians, but they might be attracted by, uh, by other things like uh, forces applied in the matrix, or um, even uh, signals that are just dropped in the extracellular matrix and that are not diffusible. So 
we started to, this, this made us realize that we should really have a better understanding of how cells are interacting with the extracellular matrix, and that we should also have better models of the extracellular matrix. And what I'm going to show you uh, now is an explorative study of how uh, signaling via the extracellular matrix might contribute to, um, uh, to uh, angiogenesis. Uh, first, I'm going to show uh, uh, the, the uh, sorry, model of the ECM as a, as a medium for chemical communication. And if I still have time, I'm also going to show you some results of the extracellular matrix as a medium for mechanical communication. So our question was, how can cell ECM interactions help coordinate cell behavior during angiogenesis? And so basically what we did, so this is work by Josephine Daub, who was a master student of my group. So what we're going to do is combine a series of experimentally plausible assumptions on cell behavior. And in this case, we do include proliferation. We have chemotaxis, but this, this time chemotaxis towards the tumor. So it's a long-range chemical signal. We assume the cells are secreting enzymes that will degrade the extracellular matrix. And there are two mechanisms by which they can respond to the density of the, uh, of the extracellular matrix. So we are now going to put these assumptions one by one in the model. So the model setup is as follows. Um, we assume there is a tumor. And we assume here is a blood vessel. Um, we also assume that the, the uh, blood vessel has already been activated. And it has already poked a small hole in its basal membrane. And we do this just to make sure that we only get one vessel. We can leave away this, this basal membrane and it will still have similar behavior, but you just get more of these sprouts. So we are going to put in one by one our model assumptions. So the first thing we have is just a basic cellular pots model. And what you can see is just by uh, the pressure that's built up in this vessel, if you poke a little hole, it will form a little blob of cells. So then the next thing we assumed is that the tumor is secreting uh, an isoform of VGF that will form long-range gradients. And as a result, this blob of cells will start, uh, will become attracted by this gradient and it will stretch. So, so far it's very straightforward. Uh, so then we uh, make a further assumption. We assume it's known that cells, um, the uh, velocity of cells can depend on the local concentration of the, uh, of the extracellular matrix. And this is called haptokinesis. So this uh, haptokinesis says that there is an optimal density of the ECM at which cells move fastest. And if there is a lower, concentra a lower concentration, they will move more slowly because they cannot get any grip on that, on the extracellular matrix. If we have a higher concentration, it means they cannot move through it. They, they will be too uh, strongly attached to the extracellular matrix in order to move, for, for them to move. So what we do here, we have a, a simple assumption, heptokinesis. This is really entirely phenomenological. And we just say that the uh, probability that they can make a pseudopod will depend on the local concentration of this ECM. And so if we have an optimal concentration, there's a high probability that we'll do it. And if there's a non-optimal concentration, we're basically going to suppress this uh, motility. 
And so then if we again do the same thing, we put in some of this ECM, which is shown here by the grayscale, then we can see that, uh, well, not, not much happens because the blob, the mo motion of the blob is going to be inhibited by non-optimal ECM concentration. So now we can add further hypotheses, namely proteolysis. So now the cells are going to secrete proteolytic enzymes like uh, MMPs that are going to degrade the extracellular matrix and in this way bring it more closely to an optimal concentration. And at the same time, they're still going to be attracted by the long-range chemoattractant. So what you can see now is that they start digging a hole, poking a hole through the chemoattractant, uh, through the ECM, and in this way they can move to the ECM. And also by poking a hole, they also make a path for the other cells that is more easy to follow. So the other cells will just follow them. But since uh, we don't have sufficient cells, uh, these blobs of cells will break loose of the parent vessel and move independently. So the uh, next thing we needed is proliferation. And we implemented by, what, basically what we assume is that the, cells, the cell division rate will depend, uh, uh, cell, cells will divide if they're not going to be contact inhibited by adjacent cells. So that means that the cells are, that are closest to the ECM and also the cells, for example, also the cells at the tips, they have the highest proliferation rate because they have the most contact with the ECM. And uh, then what you get is a nice uh, sprout that automatically splits, again without making any assumptions on the splitting rules. And now you can, you know, you can start playing around with this and, uh, for example, one thing that Josephine added is having um, haplotaxis, which means that cells will move to higher concentrations of the ECM. And in this way, uh, there is, on top of the attraction towards the top, there's also going to be a sideways attraction further into fresh areas of the ECM. So you have a kind of two counteracting Things on the one hand, you have haptokinesis that wants to keep the cells on, on tracks of optimal concentration. On the other hand, you have haptotaxis that will attract the cells to higher concentrations. And in this way, the cells will spread out and they will, it will be much more easy for them to branch out. So now, if we put every all of that together, um, this, is, this paper is almost out. Well, you get something like this. So it's really, um, that's why I call it an explorative study. It's really um, to show how can, how uh, an indirect signal between cells, so what sometimes people also call in the in insect communities, uh, in uh, uh, studies of uh, self-organization of insect communities, they call the stigmergy, how such a stigmergic signal can act to coordinate the behavior of a whole sprout. And of course then you can start playing with this kind of model. For example, increase the haptotactic strength and then, then indeed you see that the cells uh, have a preference for moving into fresh ECM uh, and they will spread out more and be uh, less dominated by this uh, VGF uh, gradient. 
can have all kinds of other studies compare those with experiments where you knock out the amount of MFPs and indeed as I said so this has um, this looks very much like what happens what people have proposed in ant colony models uh, the only difference here is that the cells are degrading their environment and in this way signaling to other cells oh this is a good place to walk for you and this could be entirely mechanical whereas in ant colony models like for example this by uh, the Neubauer uh, they assume that cells are uh, that the ants are secreting or are depositing uh, uh, pheromones that the other, the other ants will follow so I still have a little bit of time I would like to move on to a model of uh, mechanical communication so uh, this is work by postdoc in uh, uh, former postdoc in our group the name of Urs who has looked at mechanical interactions between cells anti-extracellular matrix and again what we want to do in this model we want uh, we want to have a multi-scale model where the uh, model behaves correctly behaves correctly at a couple of scales so we first want to have a model where the single cell behaves in an experimentally plausible way then we want that cell cell pairs respond to one another in an experimentally plausible way and then we want that the cell collective behaves in a plausible way and the following thing we want first for single cell behavior we want that the cells line parallel to an ex exogenous mechanical strain uh, then we want that the cells are also able to generate strains themselves and then we want that the cells are going to receive feedback from that so they are going to apply strains on the matrix and receive feedback from those strains respond to those strains so you get a, a feedback loop well so this is an example of an experiment where uh, this is uh, work by Daisy van der Schaft in Eindhoven where uh, she took uh, a collagen uh, scaffold she played it out endothelial cells on that she applies an uh, external strain but before plating the cells out and you see that the cells will align relative to the strain uh, uh, along the strain uh, yeah, parallel to the strain well, so how can we simulate that in the cell plots model? well it's again a hybrid model so we have a finite element model which uh, uh, describes the strains in the, in the matrix with linear uh, elastic assumptions and then uh, we assume that the cells will extend more easily along the strain in this model uh, in the following way and there is a threshold in there so for low strains you don't really respond to it for stronger strains you will respond uh, at the maximum rate and then this is what you get so uh, this is the degree of stretch and so you can see for a little bit of stretch the cells are not really elongating relative to that but for more strains stress they are elongating uh, much more and also uh, you will see that they follow the orientation of that uh, stretch so that first part of the model is in place so then I said the second part of the model should be that the cells are able to exert forces on the matrix and generate strains and this is what we're doing here so this is, uh, this is an experiment by Cynthia uh, Reinhardt-King and what she did is track the force microscopy basically what you can do you can 
uh, they put um, uh, fluorescent uh, uh, fluorescent spheres in the in the matrix, and they looked at the displacements of these sphere, spheres in response to the uh, forces that the cells are applying to the to the matrix. And then you can get these kind of displacement vectors. And what you can see is that these forces are typically directed towards the center of the cell, so they're really pulling on the matrix. Well, this has uh, uh, been proposed in the model of a couple of years ago, where uh, Lemon and Romer, where they also observed that cells are uh, pulling on the matrix towards the center, and uh, they could model this very well by assuming that all the nodes in uh, in the cell, all the points in the cell, would apply a force on one another that is proportional to the distance between those two points. And this means that if you have a couple of cells, a part of the cell that is further away from the rest of the cell, the cell will pull on that part with a much higher strength. Uh, yeah, more or less to pull it back, it seems. So this is what René implemented in this model. Uh, you can show that it's uh, the same as assuming a force of all the boundary nodes to the center. And then this is what you get. So the blue arrow shows the strains in the uh, finite element model. And the uh, red arrow shows the force that the cell cells are applying on that matrix. And you can see, the, you see that further uh, points of the cell that are further apart are uh, pulling harder on the matrix. And uh, this creates larger strains. So the strain field now follows the shape of the cells. So what we do not actually model is the real displacement of the, of the cells because of that. <coughs> so the next thing I promised is to have uh, feedback between the matrix and the cell shape. Uh, and Indeed, if you, uh, so what we wanted to capture is more or less this kind of behavior. So if a cell lives on a very soft matrix, it will contract, it will pull the matrix, and as a result, it will contract. If you have a very stiff matrix, it will pull on the matrix, and as a result, it will itself spread. So that's what we have here. And on intermediate stiffnesses, you will get an instability, and as a result, it elongates. And indeed, uh, by putting both elements together, you can capture this behavior in the model. So again, by really simple rules. So then the next thing is, so now we have the single cell behavior, uh, captured the single cell behavior correctly. Now we want to capture the uh, interactions between cell pairs. And there are actually two kinds of uh, behaviors we want to capture. First of all, uh, kind of behavior is uh, the following, shown by uh, Cynthia Reinhardt King. Uh, basically, uh, what she found is that you put, if you put two endothelial cells very close together on the matrix, and the matrix is soft, these cells will move, uh, will kind of join up and stay together. Right here. If uh, you do the same thing on the stiff matrix, they will move away from one another. And if you do this on an intermediate matrix of intermediate stiffness, they will move together, touch one another, and pull back and move, uh, touch one each other again. So they 
they make a couple of contacts after contacts after after each other. How how do they control the, the softness or the matrix? I think they do it. I'm not really sure, but I think they do it in a way that will not change the number of epitopes. So I think it's uh, by adding maybe agar or something like that. But really only changing the stiffness. But I'm I'm I, I'd have to check that to double check. So, so now we have again exactly the same assumptions, uh, but now we put two, two cells together in an intermediate matrix. And what you see is, is if these cells are approaching one another, they will create a strain between one another and a line uh, along that strain, move along that strain. And this will, uh, sim uh, will create a behavior that, is, that looks very much like this touching behavior at matrices of intermediate stiffness. Uh, and also, you get a, a second effect, which is the following: is that uh, this is uh, modeled and observed by Bischoff and Schwartz. Is that if you put two cells together, they will apply the strain on one another, and they will also start aligning. So they will start moving in the same uh, direction. And this is also reproduced by this uh, set of really simple rules. And the other thing is this touching behavior. Oh, so this is an overview of how this depends on the matrix stiffness. And the, initial, the initial condition where it's circular cells? Yeah. yeah. Typically these are yeah, circular cells or typically we grow them with um, a needing growth algorithm. And, and why did they become the well, In this case, by the way, it's done by the, by the surface area. Why didn't they stay circular? Why didn't they stay circular? Yeah. Why do they elongate? Yeah, this has you, don't, you don't have this term, right? In this has to do with the little fudge factor in the model that I have to admit, and this is I showed in, in the beginning. That's this threshold behavior. Okay. And I'm not sure if this is realistic. So it means, and this also determines, so the, 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 the location of, this, uh, of the switch also determines the, where the matrix is supposed to be intermediate. Right? Because uh, if you would move this. That's applied to. It's a sigmoid function that determines um, uh, how likely the cell is going to be, how likely the cell is going to protrude uh, a pseudopod along the strain. So if we do this, uh, uh, so this is the, uh, an extra, uh, an addition to the um, Hamiltonian at the moment of copying. Uh, so if it moves along the strain, it will be uh, more likely to to do that. Um, and this is uh, this also depends on the sigmoid function over here. So if there is a little strain in that direction, it won't matter. If there's much more strain, it will it will respond to it. And this in this way you can get at, if you're just at the stiffness that is in between at this region, then um, you can get an, an instability where the cell moves in a particular direction, then starts applying a little bit more strain on that direction, it moves more easily there, it elongates, so the forces increase, etc., etc. So then it elongates. So F is, uh, you wrote F of epsilon, but you mean F is a function of the strain? F, um, what is, no, e epsilon is the strain. E epsilon is the strain, but this should be epsilon 
uh, e of so okay so there's another so this is the strain um, and this is what we call the perceived strain so the the perceived sorry the perceived ECM stiffness okay so uh, we don't have real strain stiffening in the in the matrix because this is a very expensive thing to calculate we are currently working on it the the simulation has become terribly slow um, so what we did in this simulation is assume linear elastic materials and say that if the strain would become higher uh, the cells would perceive more stiffness and this then goes into this function sorry I forgot to, to explain that Stress here is proportional to strain. In, in linear, in linear, uh, that's the thing we want to simulate. So in um, linear elastic materials, or an ideal elastic material, stress is proportional to strain. In a less ideal materials, just think of a rubber band. You pull it, but you cannot keep pulling it. It won't, the strain won't continue. At a certain moment, you're reaching the end, and it's stiffening. So. And this is also a property that the ECM has. So if you pull it a little bit, it will behave more or less linearly. But if you pull it more at a certain moment, it will stiffen as a result of that. For example, because collagen fibers are then stretched right. to, the, to their full extent and they keep the material from extending further. Right. And this is a thing you can, you can simulate with finite element methods. But it's very expensive. And so that's... To keep these simulations tractable, we choose them. At this moment, we chose, for lin chose to use linear elastic assumptions. I guess my question is, even in the linear assumption, there's a tensor that relates strain to stress. Right. Yeah. Is that, and that, yeah. that in here also? Yes. Okay. Yeah. But uh, what I mean is that the strain, uh, the, the um, that the magnitude of the strain is going to be dependent on the okay. it's going to be linear proportional to the magnitude of the strain. And that's your assumption. Yeah, that's a, that's what what the linear elastic assumption. All right. Okay, so now we have the behavior for a single cell right uh, with indeed this um, uh, this uh, what I yeah what. The, the, the threshold behavior, which is going to be an important parameter, but basically what we, we did it to, in order to be able to uh, capture the phenomenology of single cells, and so we can capture the uh, phenomenology of single cells, and also those of interacting cell pairs. Um, so now we, we wonder if this is sufficient also to reproduce the uh, behavior of so collectors, and indeed it is. So if we place together a couple of cells on the lattice, here you can see the strains. We only display them, then they organize into networks. And this is because the cells are going to align again, and they form yeah local clusters of aligned cells. But in this case, unlike the first. Uh, elongation model, the cells are aligning head to head to tail rather than side by side. 
Well, then, of course, the compliance is going to matter. And the exact crossover between this is going to depend on this function f. And also, it's sufficient to produce uh, sprouting from a spheroid. And um, some biologists like this model much better than the original model we have for spheroid sprouting because it, uh, in spheroids, typically what you see is a couple of branches that, that move out, that really uh, radiate out from the sprout, instead of our model where they immediately transform themselves into a network. All right, so it, I think it's time for yeah, time for coffee, and that's why this is my conclusion slide. Okay, great. Yeah, so this is the conclusion for this. This is basically what I just told you, and then I, I could still philosophize about how how do we deal with all these different explanations for the same phenomenon, because it's all very nice that we have we can explain this phenomenon, but we can explain it in too many ways. So now we will have to find a way to choose one that is most. Uh, or choose a combination of some of them that is uh, going to best exp uh, explain the experimental data. Uh, and these are the acknowledgments of uh, this work, and uh, also acknowledgments for the, uh, oh, and for the choral work, Jaap Kamerl, uh, Albert Hoekstra, and Peter Sloot of the University of Amsterdam. Great, thank you. So, uh we don't, uh, well, if there's any questions, let's, let's just take a couple minutes of questions. I think we do have time for that. I should point out that you're giving a talk on Friday in the math department. Yeah. Yeah. Where you'll talk about some of the things that you didn't get to here. No, no, unfortunately, unfortunately, I am going to talk about the ECM stuff. Okay, all right. That's what I didn't get the get to the last time. Okay, I see. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so if you want to know more about the kidney stuff, you can Okay, talk great. The, and that's what time is that talk? Uh, that's going to be at 3. 3 p.m. in South Hall. Yeah. Which is uh, two-thirds of the way across the campus, roughly speaking. So, uh, if you just head west, you'll hit South Hall, right? It's past the Arbor, where the, there's like a food uh, area in the middle of the campus called the Arbor, I think, it's just past that. Okay, um, uh, let's see, uh, are there other questions? Great, um, I don't think I have any other announcements other than uh, there's no cookies and tea today because of the physics colloquium, which is in Broida. And the cookies and tea start in about 15 minutes, so <laughs> you have some time. Uh, and the talk today is about Higgs bosons and superconductors, which doesn't really mean Higgs bosons. It means things like Higgs bosons. Okay. All right. Uh, let's thank Roland again. Thank you.